0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for
1: the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com.
2: That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless.
1: 8 to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15
2: just 15 bucks a month. So Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch.
0: $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
1: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
3: So even if you say, well, I'm not trying to do deep work now, I'm in line at the supermarket. So I'm bored. Let me look at some things. That actually affects your deep work the next morning or the next day when you actually want to do it. So there's this whole notion of of passive training where uh, you basically are embracing boredom. Um, where you, you give your mind plenty of practice in actually resisting the urge for distraction, being bored, being present, uh, that actually has the same sort of ramifications on your ability to focus down the line. Just like my previous example of smoking having to do on cardiovascular fitness. Mm-hmm. So you know if you're smoking outside of your practice as a professional athlete, when you get to your actual game you're going to struggle. I think it's the same thing that if your life, your attention constantly is shifting towards things that are novel and interesting, if you can't tolerate boredom, it's going to be very hard when it comes time to focus for you to actually do it. So we have sort of this active, let me increase the muscle, and this passive, uh, let me get my mind better at resisting distraction.
4: Sure, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, we actually had you here back when we were called Blogcast FM, at, you know, when we were talking about your uh, first book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And, you know, you sent me an email saying that you had a new book out uh, called Deep Work. And I had the fortunate pleasure of devouring the entire book uh, on a cross coast uh, flight. And read it all in one sitting and was really, really blown away by it. Uh, but you know, given that it's been so long since we, we had you here, uh, there's probably a lot of new people in our audience who may not know about your work and who you are. So uh, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to now?
3: Well, my day job is I'm a college professor. So I'm a computer science professor at Georgetown University. I work in the theoretical side of computer science. So think uh, staring at whiteboards, solving proofs, that type of thing. Uh, I also write books. And uh, what my books tend to do is uh, follow along the issues that are relevant in my life as uh, an academic, in my life outside of writing. I write books about the issues that interest me or affect me in my normal day job life. So for example, my last book, Uh, So Good They Can't Ignore You had to do with how do you choose and create a career that's going to be a source of passion. Well, I wrote that book. As I was making the transition from graduate school into uh, the world of, of professorship and was really struggling and thinking a lot about these issues of, okay, am I making the right choice? How do you even make these choices? Uh, my, my new book, Deep Work, for example, is about uh, how to produce work of real value and fulfillment by training yourself to focus. Well, turns out this is exactly what I have to deal with is I'm, I'm trying to, for example, get tenure as a, as a theoretical computer scientist. So um, I'm, I'm a professor And I'm a writer who writes books to make myself a better professor.
4: Hmm. Okay, so there's so much stuff here. But, you know, I want to do something that we didn't get to do in our last conversation. And I want to look back at the very early parts of your life, like growing up, childhood, parents, mentors, influences. I mean, what are the things that ultimately, you know, piqued your interest in computer science and led you down this trajectory of of going into academia and becoming a professor and a teacher?
3: Well, I'm from that that generation. I was born in 19... 82. So I'm a sort of early millennial at the very edge of the millennial generation. So we're this generation that uh, grew up with computers. Uh, They were, they were, had been around enough that they were ubiquitous, yet they were still uh, unpolished enough that you could get your hands dirty and be doing computer programming and messing around with circuits uh, even at a very early age. So uh, I think we had a computer in the house. From a very young age, my, my mom was a computer programmer. She did some remote working. So we always had computers in the house from an early age, and, and, I, and I took to it. Um, I think if, if you really want to understand how I ended up in this uh, weird meta situation where I write about what I'm also doing, uh, that story probably takes you back to my high school years, which was during the first dot-com boom. And uh, I used my computer skills to start a technology company when I was in high school. Um, Starting a technology company exposed me to the world of business writing, advice writing, how-to writing. Um, So from a very early age, I was uh, really exposed to this way of systematic thinking about, okay, here's a thing in your life, what's the best way to to tackle it? So from a very young age, I was thinking through this sort of how-to uh, how do I break or understand the system type perspective, which is I think why I ended up writing books as I went along. I couldn't help but think think about things through that type of lens
4: okay so the the tendency to to break the system uh, you know and to do something as you know audacious as starting a tech company while you're in high school uh, you know based on on what you've seen from the perspective of an educator, do you think that that Tendency is something that people are inherently born with, or is it something that can be uh, learned? And if so, how?
3: I think there is, uh, from what I've observed, there's a lot of uh, serendipity involved in people's sort of initial exposure to something like that that then pays dividends uh, for the years that follow so there's a, a moment of sort of positive serendipity that can then uh, lead to a lot of benefits so in my case for example I don't think it was something I was born with I think it was I was uh, a computer hacker type who happened to be 16 17 years old and a little bit bored at exactly the time that this big dot-com boom happened and basically everyone and their brother and everyone's cousin and everyone's nephew started starting businesses. So it didn't take a, a huge leap of, uh, of boldness there. I said, well, I could probably do that too. Uh, I, I you know, didn't necessarily like the jobs I had, and this could be a better way to make money. And then that serendipitous timing set down this trajectory where I, I began to do more and more things who were perhaps a little bit unusual. I see that a lot. When I look at people who end up doing things that are very interesting in life, is that there's these moments of serendipity early on that that pay off dividends going forward.
4: Mm. Those moments of serendipity, uh, which I, I realize this is probably going to sound like a ridiculous question because it's kind of the the antithesis of serendipity. Do you think those moments can be brought about?
3: I think they can be encouraged. Um, so I actually, I a few books ago, I wrote this book about uh, college admissions, and I was I was trying to understand. Um, what makes people interesting? So, <laughs> it, it's it's an interesting story behind this book. Uh, essentially, uh, my my publisher merged with another publisher, and the book bounced hands between half a dozen different editors in a one year period. So, basically, uh, I had this book deal, and then I was let loose. There's no one looking over my shoulder, so I, I kind of took this book in directions. There's no one saying, "Hey, wait a second, what are you writing about?" So, I I, I took this book into this interesting direction, trying to understand. Uh, What makes people interesting? What's the psychology of interestingness? And that led me to this notion that uh, you can expose yourself to, uh, this is a phrase I took from Ben Kasnoka, bulk positive randomness. If you actually open yourself up, especially at a young age, uh, to lots of different encounters with things that serendipitously could become very interesting to you or could catch your attention or could open up an interesting opportunity, you can essentially uh, force or accelerate this process of ending up a very interesting person doing interesting things. So I think you can engineer a lifestyle that's very conducive to this type of serendipity.
4: As a professor, how do you see this playing out uh, in your classrooms with uh, students today that are in school?
3: Uh, You know, it's interesting because I think there is my students who, who are, you know, I'm young, so <laughs> they're part of the same generation I am,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, they're, they're driven towards distinction, doing things of, of impact, doing things of value uh, in a way that always catches my attention and, and I think is going to be one of the hallmarks of this generation. Um, I also think that there's a real dearth of sort of sophisticated conversation about how you act on that desire, I, I think this is one of the things that, that our generation actually um, could use more of. And this was something I tried to tackle in the, that earlier book of mine, So Good They Can Ignore You, this notion that, um, okay, now that you have this, this idea of you want to do something meaningful, something that's passionate, let's uh, get into the weeds a little bit mm. about, about what's actually involved in that. So I, I see a lot of sort of frustrated energy um, among this young generation, especially at a school like Georgetown where everyone's so talented and so smart. People want to get out there. And be unmistakable, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not always obvious how to do it. Once you get past the the feel good slogans, it's not always obvious. Okay, then what's next? Mm-hmm.
4: You know, okay. So uh, I, I love this, and it, it, you know, I I'd always thought about this, uh, and I always thought back to that conversation I had with you. And you know, people had asked me, "Am I passionate about interviewing people?" I said, "No, I'm like I just got good at it because I did it a lot, and then I became passionate about it." <laughs> And, and to me, that was sort of, you know, uh, at a, exactly an example of, of sort of the framework that you offered um, in, in So Good They Can't Ignore You.
3: Yeah. I mean, that was that was the core idea is that we we get the, harp of, uh, the cart before the horse when mm-hmm. it comes to passion. Passion's a great goal for your career, but somehow we got sidetracked, our culture, <laughs> into this notion that we all come hardwired with a passion. And it takes a little bit of introspection, and once you find it and match it to your job then you're passionate about your job and you love it going forward. And really the reality is for most people, passion is is cultivated. It's hard won and cultivated over time. And getting really good at something is usually the first step <laughs> towards how uh, you actually get there. You know, passion is great, but you don't follow passion. Passion follows you. Mm-hmm. It's it's a subtle switch, but but it really makes a difference. I mean, it can really cure quite a bit, I think, of sort of anxiety and frustration among these people that have this this ability mm-hmm. and have this desire to do something and to, to really build this meaningful life. Uh, and they, they're frustrated because if you just hear this message, like, well, there's something you're meant to do. And once you discover it, you'll immediately know it. When, you, when you're just being told that message, right. uh, you're going to frustrate a lot of people. The reality is more interesting than that.
4: Yeah, It's funny because we had Tina Seelig here and you might be familiar with her work. Uh, she's, at, she's from Stanford and she had said something along the lines of passion follows engagement.
3: Yeah, I think this is one of these issues that the you look at it from a bunch of different angles. You see these same ideas pop up, and not just in modern, you know, psychology or academic psychology. I mean, all the way back to the the ancient Greeks, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna see these same ideas coming up. That you know, a passionate life, a fulfilling life, a flourishing life. It always comes back to to uh, engagement, craftsmanship, uh, building out your potential, transforming a talent into skill. These notions are old. Uh, what's new is this recent moment where we somehow forgot that and somehow convinced ourselves that, no, no, you're just hardwired for something. Follow your passion. I'll be fine.
4: Mm-hmm. So I have a question, actually, about our education system, uh, and this is something I, I wanted to ask you because I knew we were going to be talking. And we've had a lot of conversations around education here on the show because, you know, their parents were using the content from the podcast to homeschool their their kids. Uh, and, it, you know, an instructor at NYU has been using the content as part of her curriculum. So it's been really kind of interesting for me to look at how education has been evolving And, you know, I look back at the education that I got, I I went to a good school, I went to Berkeley, and then I got an MBA. But then, you know, I kind of found myself prepared for a future that didn't exist. And you being in the trenches, uh, you know, having a front row seat to how we're educating people today, I just would love to hear kind of your thoughts and your perspective on, you know, what it's like, what's wrong with it, what's right about it. Um, And it does it make sense for everybody to go to college, given the rising cost of tuition.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a, Complicated issue, and I think one of the more interesting issues that uh, our culture is going to face over the next few decades. Now, I don't have uh, a great answer in terms of this is you know what I think mm-hmm. education is going to to look like uh, in the future, but I think there's a, a couple trends uh, and observations that are that have at least helped me in thinking about it. Uh, you know, one trend I think that's really important. And I think this is why Trina, you're, you're finding there's interest in your material uh, for other people who are forming curriculums is that um, we, we do have a focus on the fundamental skills, uh, but we don't always have as much of a focus on how those skills come together uh, and, and the reality of how they're leveraged and how impact happens. And I think that that can lead to a lot of uh, naivete or confusion among students. Like, so what do I do next? And so I think this notion of like you do, taking people who have put skills to work to do things that are meaningful and really trying to understand, well, what was their life like? How did they do it? What mattered? What didn't? What did it feel like? That is missing uh, in the way that we talk about education in a way that it, it used to be there. In a classical education, I mean, a part of what you were doing was really trying to study these examples from, from the past to understand, you know, how people formed lives of meaning. Uh, you know, you would read the, you would read the Iliad, that should try to understand, you know, what's the basics of constructing a a life of, of, you know, value and honor in a a difficult world. Uh, We've we've lost that part. It's become a little bit more technical. So I I think gaining that back, uh, there's a huge hunger for it. There's a huge hunger, and I'd be interested to see whether that's integrated to the curriculum. Um, At the same time, I think there needs to be a a pretty rigorous defense mounted um, for some of the more traditional uh, just hard won, academic style skills. Um, you know, I'm someone who who I like grades. I think I think this notion of I'm going to go to this class and we're going to understand this topic and and it's going to be hard and uh, we're going to get grades on it, and, and I'm going to try to get a good grade, I'm going to try really hard to get it, that's when deliberate practice happens from mm-hmm. a neurological standpoint. That's when people, your brain gets sharper, you, you gain more connections, you build more skills, which are the foundation. So it's some balance of these two things I think is necessary. I mean, We, we need some notion of the meta skills of how you do things of meaning and, and value. But if you don't have uh, the concrete skills, um, all of that ambition and knowledge is not going to get you anywhere either.
4: You know, it's it's really interesting because I, I think the, those two things are, you know, at least in my experience with my education were largely out of balance. Uh, you know, Berkeley was all, at least at that time, I mean, we, we've we grown up probably around similar time frames. You're a little bit younger than I am. But, uh, you know, I remember thinking it was like, this is what you do. This will lead to a job. But the idea of exploring sort of these inner issues, like the deeper meaning of life, our values and all those things, I was kind of amazed that nobody had talked to me about any of those things at uh, the time in my life when I felt they would have been so impactful. And yet I maybe think at this point, you know, being 37, that maybe I would have written it all off as a bunch of hokey new age bullshit.
3: Yeah. Maybe that, maybe that is the issue. I don't know. I have this notion if if I was put in charge of a university, I think a university could do very well in this day and age by making their school much harder. Mm. Uh, and, and saying, we're going to, we're going to have a, this very rigorous, uh, Curriculum and call it liberal arts 2.0, where you know if you, it's going to be very hard to pass. And right, you you might do really poorly or might fail out. Like it's going to be really hard. It's like the Marines. You might not be good enough for us, right? I mean, it's going to be really hard. Make it hard, and and have these these standards you're going to come out of this if you if you get it through here and pass you like here's the things you're going to be able to do i mean you're going to be able to be very comfortable with multivariate you know whatever calculus you're going to be really versed in understanding you know you could really understand the nuances of shakespeare you are going to be like really up to speed on you know modern whatever computer this you're also going to have pretty deep understanding of like the the core non-western western canon in terms of the great works of literature. I mean, I'm, making things more difficult. We're going to challenge your mind. It's like being in the Marines. It's going to be hard. You might not make it through, but if you do, you're going to be a sort of cognitive warrior. I think people, there's a, there's a, a growing group who, who is ready for that challenge. So yeah, let's, let's put, let's put my mind to the test. Let me strengthen it. Let me grow it Uh, and get a, get away a little bit from the, the, the dialogue. Just, just um, here's what job you're going to get if you do this right just that complete just that complete transaction i don't know i think it's interesting
4: you know i think the other thing that's interesting to me especially about computer science in particular you know i really couldn't make any sense of computer science i struggled so much with it uh because i couldn't you know take something theoretical and you know apply it to something practical but i think what's what's really been neat to see in the world that we live in today is that we're finally getting to this place where the gap between creativity and technology is getting narrower. And the very people who, you know, couldn't build something before now suddenly have the capacity to, um, because it's become easier.
3: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, there's just, there's just more tools. You know, if, if you wanted to, to work, I had a summer job way back when, after my freshman year of college, where I was, you know, programming a microcontroller. Um, Back then, that was a, to make a machine work, and that was a very hard thing. You were you were writing you know assembler code, and 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 you were you were trying to create the object files and do all this very complicated work just to try to get these microcontrollers working. Uh, and now you have Arduino's, where it's just very easy experience. It's on your computer. You just drag these widgets over and type high level code. And so I'm I that just struck me that particular example of you know how much effort and skills and low level knowledge was needed to do something very simple with an embedded controller where now you can have uh, third graders, mm-hmm. you know, up and up and running after a few days, you know, building, building, you know, embedded robots and stuff like this.
4: So uh, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned this idea of systematic thinking uh, and, how that's kind of impacted your work and your books and, and, you know, the, your work you do as a professor, I, I'd love for you to talk about what you mean by that, how that applies to people's work, and then we'll work our way into the sort of the entire framework of deep work.
3: So I'm, I'm from this, uh, weird perspective, as I mentioned before, where I was exposed to or how to business and advice writing at a very young age and was immersed in it at a, a very young age. And and so what that does to a still forming mind is it, it gives you a perspective on the world in which, um, there's different ways to handle tasks, some that work better than others. It's worth figuring out which ways work better and using those in lieu of the ones that don't work well. That seems obvious, but most people don't think that way. So you know, fast forward a couple of years, I show up at college, um, and I'm looking around and thinking, uh, "Well, this is crazy. Like, why are people studying this way? Why are they? Why are they in the library all night? I mean, what's what's this going on? People seem you know miserable. The, the people's grades are erratic. Uh, that doesn't make sense." where's the advice guy? And I go to the bookshelves and I can't find a book that says, okay, here's how the best students study and breaks it down. So I said, I'll just figure it out myself and, you know, ran a series of experiments. And it turned out that, you know, most undergraduates are terrible at studying. And with some basic experimental work, you could put together a set of habits that in my case gave me uh, a 4.0 grade average for the last three years of college while studying significantly less. And my, actually my first books were, okay, here's how you study because that book didn't exist. No one, no one had a book that just said, here's what the, the really high scoring students do this, do this, don't do this. Here's what works. Here's what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, that type of mindset was very natural to me. There's systems. There's the right way to do things and bad way to do things. is worth making a difference. But again, most people don't think that way studying for a lot of people to keep using this, this analogy or example was something that was also tied up in, in, in social pressures and presentation of self and all these other types of things that were going on, which I, I guess I was missing some of that when I was analyzing it. Uh, but I see things like that as it's a there's systems that work and systems that don't, and so that's just what I've applied through you know throughout my life. You get, uh, um, well, what's the right way to, to choose a job? Mm-hmm. What's the right way to do well in a knowledge work job like being a professor? There's good ways and bad ways. How do you organize your time? How do you manage your work? Uh, I just can't help but see everything through that perspective. That the, these are all sort of systems problems with with right answers and wrong answers.
4: Okay. So knowing that lots of parents are listening to the show, chances are the question of, okay, what do those study habits look like? And as somebody who got, you know, far less than a seller GPA at Berkeley, I personally am morbidly curious about how I could have done this differently.
3: Oh, it's, it's, it's no contest with the study habits. So I, I wrote this book called how to be, how to become a straight A student. Mm-hmm. I interviewed 50, 50 straight-A students from a variety of schools. I threw out the the interview responses from people who were grinds, and I just looked for common strategies, and I put them in a book. Uh, and then I started Study Hacks, my blog, soon after that so that I could kind of keep up with people who had, had put the system in place. And over the years, especially the first few years after that book uh, came out, it was just dozens and dozens of stories coming in. And the transformations, I mean, there's very few fields in which you can get transformations this, this uh the stunning, but people are just so bad <laughs> at studying that it allows it. The transformations that I would hear stories about were, were just like my own. People that were struggling with their GPA to straight-A student and in a period of four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. I mean, people's study habits are so bad uh, that there's just huge Room, you know, for improvement. So the things that actually work are not that they don't turn out to be that surprising. It turns out, um, okay, uh, you have to control your time. So you have to know uh, what's due when, what studying do I have to get done by what point, and actually figure out in advance what's the right, what are the right times to do that. So it's not just what's due tomorrow and then scrambling all night to get it done. All right, that's one. Two, uh, active review instead of passive review tends to be that's like the holy grail. That's the secret. That's, that's the difference between 4O students and those below is they never just read things to learn it, they always are trying to uh, lecture out loud or recreate problems out loud as if lecturing a class. Uh, that's how they, they learn. You know, if, if I can explain it to you in complete sentences, I know it. If I can't, I don't. You never see these students reading highlighted textbooks again and again. So they control their time, they do active review, and they study like Darwin, which is their, once a semester or so, they tend to say, okay, what worked and what didn't? What did I do for that last exam that was a waste of time? What did I do that I should really amplify for the next time? You put those three things together, and I think almost any student can be, uh, you know, dean's list.
4: So I want to ask you something uh, for very personal reasons. How does something like this uh, come into play when you deal with people who may have learning disabilities, for example, like ADHD or, or you know, like severe attention issues?
3: Well, students with ADHD, uh, they felt there's a lot of resonance with them and the work I was doing. So, you know, I, I met a lot of students through my writing on this. Mm-hmm. And it, it turns out that a lot of the strategies, a lot of the the recommended indications, evidence-backed indications for uh, improving academic performance with ADHD actually look quite a bit similar to the type of things I was finding uh, that straight-A students were doing. I mean, they're, they're, you have to have a lot more um, structure and approach to how you do your work. Now, I break it up this way. I've put aside this time. I go to a place without distractions. I do exactly this well-defined task for this time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually what's recommended for people with attention issues, those type of strategies. Uh, and that's what these other students were doing as well. So, so in terms of people who get it, when I talk to them about this approach to studying, uh, students with attention issues, a lot of this sounds familiar. Wow.
1: Small details or big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall.
4: Well, you know, it's funny, as I listened to you say that, I can't help but think that this could be completely applicable even in my adult life when I'm not no longer in school to like the books I read and the things that I digest on a daily basis.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there are some basic notions in here. You know, if you can replicate something yourself, you understand it much more than if you just consumed it. Uh-huh. I think that's true, you know, with for reading books, like you, you have to do so much for, for your job as an interviewer, um, trying to learn a new technique. I think that absolutely holds. And I think uh, structuring. Structuring time, you know, uh, okay, let me put aside time in advance when I'm going to do these things. It's a simple notion, but it unlocks, you know, quite a bit more productivity.
4: Well, I think that makes a, a perfect setup to really get into the meat of what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, uh, which is this entire framework for deep work. Like I said, I mean, I sat down and I read the whole thing and, in one flight and I was just like, oh my God. I mean, some of the things I recognized immediately as habits that are, are of my own. But um, do you think you could walk us through sort of the, the entire framework of deep work and how it can be applied to people's lives and their work, regardless of what their field might be?
3: Well, here's the big idea. So, uh, So deep work is Uh, what I call the activity of uh, focusing intensely without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. So when you're locked in on something and giving it intense focus and without distraction for a long period of time, that's deep work. And the, the, the core uh, hypothesis that sort of motivates the whole book is that uh, this skill, deep work is becoming increasingly valuable uh, in our current economy Right. Deep work is the activity that cannot be easily out, uh, automated. It's the activity that cannot be easily outsourced. It's the activity that produces deep creativity. It's the activity that produces things of real value. It's the activity that can produce at a level of productivity uh, that that's orders of magnitude larger um, than, than its alternatives. So it's this thing that's becoming increasingly uh, valuable as our economy moves more towards this uh, – you know, more automated, more outsourceable, where uh, there's a few stars and, and a lot of people below. At the same time that it's becoming more valuable, uh, it's becoming more rare. Mm-hmm. And it's becoming more rare for two reasons. One, I argue that people are actually losing the ability to do it. And this is a point we can come back to, but uh, deep work is a skill that actually has to be trained. Uh, it's not a habit. It's not a habit like flossing, something you know how to do. It's just a matter of remembering to do it. It's a skill like playing the guitar mm. that if you haven't trained, you're not going to be good at it. Uh, so it's becoming rare because we're getting worse at it and we, we kind of know the culprits here. Our, both our professional and personal lives now are increasingly built around these sources of distractions, um, which from a cognitive perspective I think is like being an athlete who smokes uh, it's just destroying our ability to actually do this type of deep work. It's also becoming more rare just because of the, the way that we structure our working lives is, is such that uh, our time is just really fractured. Mm-hmm. So we, we just don't have the time for the long stretches that you need to actually do deep work. So here we have a, a mismatch, right? This is a classic uh, case of economic scarcity. You have something that's becoming more valuable at the same time that is becoming more rare, So I noticed this mismatch and had this idea that, well, wait a second, that means if you're one of the few to cultivate a deep work ability, which means train yourself to do it and build schedules that protects and makes time for it, you're going to thrive. You're really going to to thrive in our current economy. You're going to be very successful. Your life is going to be much more meaningful. You're going to enjoy your work much more. Uh, So I really see deep work as like the superpower of 21st century business and, I think it's something that we need to talk about as a tier one skill, just like we would being able to write well or program a computer. And I want to promote this skill as something that I think it's worth mastering because it really can create a very successful, very meaningful professional life.
4: Okay, so you know I'm not going to let you off the hook. You've heard our interviews. <laughs> There's so much more there that I wanted to do. So let's talk about how to train the skill, because to me, that's the part I think people are really going to be curious about. I know you go into some of this in the book, and I was really blown away by by it. Even you know, despite my own you know experiences of working with this whole thousand word a day idea, I, I found that this was easily one of the most useful books I've read this entire in this entire year.
3: Yeah, and I, and I, I I think this is an important point, especially for let's say your audience, right? Because I. Something I've observed is when it comes, for example, to creative work in particular, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of good conversation out there about, you know, hey, you gotta prioritize this, you gotta make the time to do it, this is what matters, you gotta you gotta get out there and and produce something the world needs, it's you know what you're passionate about. And that's all good, but the conversation stops there and doesn't get to the next step, which is all right, what happens when you sit down with the blank page? Mm-hmm. Or when you know you've quit the job and you now have these long open bits of time to, to really go there and create something that the world matters. What do you do when you're staring at the blank the blank canvas or the blank screen or or the open page? Uh, we don't talk about that part, but that requires deep work. It's non obvious. You got to train your ability uh, to be able to sit there and actually produce a thousand words. That is. Good. That mm-hmm. uses all of your skills to, to its highest. To be able to sit down and master a new technique very quickly, these things are all deep work efforts and they have to be trained. And so we miss out that piece of the conversation. Uh, if you just take someone and say, I've talked to your boss and, you know, Monday through Wednesday every week, you can just be in this monastery doing your deepest, most creative work. No one will bother you. Uh, that's not enough to unlock your potential because if you haven't trained your ability to actually think and concentrate intensely, uh, to actually unlock your skills and to build your skills rapidly, if you haven't trained it, you're not going to get much out of that time. Uh, People know this who who have done digital detoxes. Uh, Maybe they take a few days and they they cut themselves off from distractions. Uh, They often describe the experience at first as one of great anxiety. Uh, It's almost like a, a... a, de- a actual detox type situation. If your brain is not used to it, uh, it's not ready to perform. So that that's all a preface to say um, deep work should be thought about like a skill that has to be trained. The good news is very few people do this. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of the few to actually train your deep work ability like you would your ability to, to play the guitar or shoot a basketball, um, you're going to start making gains right away that you're going to see a difference in because uh, your peers probably aren't doing it. Now, I stumbled into this idea because of this weird job I'm in. So I'm a, I'm a theoretical computer scientist. This is one of these last fields that uh, explicitly identifies the ability to do deep work as being the number one key skill in the profession. You know, so I, I spent my formative years in grad school uh looking at some of the smartest people in the world, you know, literal winners of MacArthur Genius Grants and Turing Awards that would sit and stare at whiteboards for hours at a time. And I'm in in one of the last fields that explicitly talks about deep work as being a skill that you have to train. So I'd always sort of known about it and prioritized it. And I'm, I'm trying to take this away from that world and spread it to the wider world. Say, hey, anyone can learn this skill and you're going to have a huge impact. So I, I've still avoided your question of uh, how, <laughs> how you actually train, train it. it, but I, I just wanted to emphasize again this notion that I, I think this is the key idea that this skill is very very valuable, and if you train it, it's going to return huge value. So let, let's talk about yeah. okay. how do you actually how do you actually uh, train this skill? Um, well, there's I'm gonna invent a couple of new terms here just for clarity but we can think of uh, passive and active training activities mm-hmm. uh, so active training activities is where like uh, lifting a heavy weight you actually push your ability to concentrate and actually try to push that ability to be uh, deeper so uh, there, there's a lot of different things you can you can do um, for example uh, I promote the notion of productive meditation which is where you take a specific problem and you uh, You hold it in your mind. It's better if you do this while you're walking. Uh, That seems to be the right level of activity. And holding this problem in your mind, you try to actually make progress on it. So it could be trying to structure a section of a business plan or outline a a chapter of a report or a book or or make progress on a programming or mathematical problem, whatever is relevant to your career. And just like with mindfulness meditation, uh, when you find your attention wandering from the problem and trying to think about other things, which it will absolutely do, you just notice it and bring your attention back to the problem and keep trying to push deeper and deeper. Hold the variables in your working memory and then push down a little deeper. Hold those new results in your working memory, push down a little bit deeper. Uh, this is something where you can actually find yourself getting better at week by week if you do it regularly just like any other skill. So that's an example of active training. There's, there's, there's many other things that are relevant there. I think equally important is passive training. Uh, and this comes back to the role that you allow distractions to play in your life. And uh, a key observation that that several different strains of, of scientific literature have, have emphasized uh, is that if during most of your day, your attention is constantly shifting around and shifting towards stimuli that are novel and interesting. So, you know, if you have a moment's boredom, you always check Facebook real quick or you mm-hmm. shoot through your cycle of Facebook, Twitter, Feedly, email, okay, back to what I'm doing. If you have those type of cycles, uh, you're actually weakening your executive center's ability to, to resist distraction and focus when you need it. So even if you say, well, I'm not trying to do deep work now, I'm in line at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. So who, well, I'm, I'm bored. Let me look at some things as that actually affects your deep work the next morning or the next day when you actually want to do it. So there's this whole notion of, of passive training where, uh, you basically are embracing boredom. Um, where you, you give your mind plenty of practice in actually resisting the urge for distraction, being bored, being present, uh, that actually has the same sort of ramifications on your ability to focus down the line. Just like my previous example of smoking having to do on cardiovascular fitness. Mm-hmm. So you know if you're smoking outside of your practice as a professional athlete, when you get to your actual game. You're going to struggle. I think it's the same thing that if your life, your attention constantly is shifting towards things that are novel and interesting, if you can't tolerate boredom, it's going to be very hard when it comes time to focus for you to actually do it. So we have sort of this active, let me increase the muscle and this passive, uh, let me get my mind better at resisting distraction.
4: Mm-hmm. So that was amazing, uh, and the part I want to go into next is the three different types of deep work philosophies because those really struck a chord with me so much so that I ended up taking some of it, including it in my book. Uh, but I'd love for you to talk about those because I think that you know understanding those uh, will help people really understand where they you know where it fits for them.
3: It, it is an important point because you know I, I mentioned before there's two parts to to cultivating deep work. One is just your ability to do it, and that's what we were just talking about. And two is how do you actually structure your working life so that you have time for deep work? And you need both of these things if you're going to cultivate a deep work habit. And I think one of the the things that trips people up the most is when you take a one-size-fits-all approach. So maybe you observe someone who does a lot of deep work in their life and you say, I want that. And you try to take their approach to scheduling deep work and shoehorn it onto your working life where it really might not fit. It really might not make sense given the demands of your job. Uh, So something I do in the book is I go through multiple different styles I've seen for how people integrate deep work into their life so that you get this sense of variety. But you have a lot of flexibility in figuring this out. So just to, to briefly summarize some of those styles, at, at one extreme, you have the monastic approach, which is where you essentially try to eliminate everything but deep work in your life. You're, you're cut off from the world. You're hard to reach. Your whole life is built around just a deep work activity. Um, most people can't pull that off. This is most common among, for example, professional novelists or, or artists who, who, who can pull this off, um, But for someone who has clients or customers, this might be, or a boss, this might be more hard. All right. So then another approach is what I call the bimodal approach. Um, And this is this notion that there's uh, two phases in your working life. There's phases where you're not doing deep work, and then there's phases in where all you're doing is deep work monastically. And the key thing is for the bimodal approach is that when you're in a deep work phase, it lasts for at least a day. And, And, you know, the book opens with the story of how the great, you know, thinker and psychologist Carl Jung built this. Uh, stone tower in the woods in the in the woods out uh, in the countryside outside of of uh, Zurich, where he would go to this tower for a couple days at a time, and that's where he'd do his deep thinking and then he'd go back to Zurich and it was patience all the time and the coffee shop and speeches and all the craziness we're used to uh, so that's the bimodal mode then you have the the sort of rhythmic. Uh, method, which is also popular, which is where people put aside uh, a, a set schedule for deep work. You know, it's every morning from 5 a.m. to 6:30, or it's every Saturday, or I do it in the evening every other day. Uh, where you just have this set pattern of I, I, I this is when I do my deep work, and I'm just used to it. Mm-hmm. The meta idea here is that uh, there's different ways that you can integrate deep work into your life. So it's worth stepping back and saying what actually makes sense uh, given the demands of what I do for a living. If if you're uh, management consultant, for example, your answer to that question is going to be different than if you're an award-winning literary novelist.
4: So I have a question. As you do more of this and you wean yourself off of distraction, does your capacity to do deep work for longer periods of time increase? Yes.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what happens. You what, what you uh, you lose the, the strong urge to take your attention away from the deep work and put it on something else that urge diminishes and you find that you're able to have high energy sort of flow style concentration for longer periods of time.
4: Okay. So speaking of time, let's, let's talk about how time plays a role in all of this and how to manage time. Cause I know you you know, wrote extensively about that in the book as well. And I'd like to do a, a bit of a deeper dive into that as well, because I think you had some really amazing points about how that works.
3: Yeah, and again, this comes back to this pragmatic question of, okay, how do I get deep work into my schedule? Uh, I think one of the high-level ideas here that's core is that you have to have some control over your schedule um, if deep work is going to make an appearance. Uh, Because for the most part, in most modern knowledge work jobs, you're very rarely going to find yourself in the course of the day saying, you know what, I don't have much to do. And um, I'm just really in the mood to concentrate really hard on something that might be kind of boring. <laughs> You're just not going to have that time come up spontaneously. So, so if you actually want deep work to be uh, a regular part of your working schedule, you have to be in the regular habit of controlling your time more, looking at your week as a whole and figuring out what's happening on what day. So you can say, for example, all right, I'm blocking out Thursday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., and, I'm I'm not going into the office Then I'm going, you know, to this coffee shop or this, this museum and I'm going to work on this problem deeply. So, so once you have some control over your time and you're, 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 looking at the whole picture, what am I going to do when you can actually, uh, make time for deep work in a way that if you just wait for, you know, Hey, the time feels right to do deep work. Uh, if you're just waiting for that to happen, you're going to be a lot less successful.
4: So two questions come from this. Um, where have you seen people go wrong when they try to incorporate this into their life? And what have been the patterns that you've seen between people who've successfully incorporated it into their life before it was part of their life?
3: Those are good questions. Um, so where, where, where people get it wrong, so maybe, maybe there's two pitfalls I'll mention. Um, so one pitfall is uh, trying to enthusiastically put a lot of deep work into your life before you've actually trained the deep work muscle. And, and that can actually be quite frustrating because you, you block out this time and you end up, you know, checking Facebook and your email throughout the whole time anyways because your brain is just completely not ready for it yet. So not not starting with the training, doing the half marathon before you've actually started jogging. Um, the the other thing that I think what marks people who, who succeed with it, um, among other things, is, is a clarity about what deep work means to their profession. You know, what it is, they have this clarity that um, – This skill here, this type of output, this is really important to me and important to what I I do, and I really understand what goes into it. I'm not just sort of blindly uh, jumping into something that I don't really know about. That I really understand this skill is my craft, um, and I understand this craft, and I I understand what it means to be good at it. I understand how to get better at it. Having that clarity uh, allows you to really focus your energy on what you're doing. I mean, I, I think there's a reason, for example, uh, why, and this is a hypothesis, but if you look at fiction writing, there's a reason why, and I, I did this once where I went through the New Yorkers, 25 under 25 or 30 under 30, or whatever the age is. Mm-hmm. And it was with very few exceptions, uh, like Zadie Smith, he was just uh, very young, um, they would all gone to MFA programs. And it's, it's, it's not, it can't be the case that there's some secret, you know, that, that at the MFA program, here's how you actually write, you know, here's the secret to being a, an award-winning novelist. But I think what people get in those programs is um, confidence and competence in, in sort of this, this particular profession. What makes good writing good? What do the good writers do? What does the lifestyle of writing do? And that allows you to sort of focus your energy in a way that if you instead, by contrast, just start with National Novel Writing Month say, so, well, let me just start writing my novel and all that matters is that I'm doing something. I'm starting, that's going to be much less likely to succeed because you don't have this, this confident, competent focus for your energy. So, I mean, where people really succeed with deep work is where they understand what their craft is and what it means to improve it and how people improve it. Uh, Um, And then that gives you something to actually focus this energy on. And it's a feedback cycle. It's very fulfilling. It's very motivating. So, you know, it's it's sort of before you can do a lot of deep work, you got to train your ability to do it. And you really got to understand the craft that you're trying to hone.
4: So what are some of the outcomes that you've seen, uh, in people's lives that have been just, uh, mind blowing to you personally?
3: I'll give you a a personal example. So let's take the me writing this book, deep work. Mm Um, so, you know, I wrote this book about two years, you know. I guess it would be about a year and a half ago now. It takes a while for the publication process to work. Um, it was a, you know, an important period in my academic life because I'm I just submitted my tenure package. So this is when I was really working on my research. So you would uh, expect that, okay, if you're adding a book to your schedule, mm-hmm. that your productivity and other things should decrease commensurately. Because as you know, (laughs) having been deep into your own manuscript right now, Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of time uh, to write a book. Um, But I was writing a book on deep work. So while I was writing this book, it forced me to to think really hard about my deep work habits and to be a little bit more careful about it and to up my training. So it it upped my deep work game working on this book. And the outcome was during the year where I was writing this book on deep work, my academic output doubled as compared to any previous year. Mm -hmm. So a, a dress, even with a drastic reduction in my available time, I, I doubled the amount of uh, top-tier peer-reviewed papers I published. All because uh, I focused even more on my deep work. I was a little bit more careful about you know my my deep work habits, my rituals, my training. And to me, I think that indicates just how much power deep work has in terms of its ability to produce. Uh, a massive amount of really high value output—it's uh, just so surprising. It's this is—we're not talking about epsilon's here. Like, well, you'll get slightly more done if you embrace mm-hmm. deep work. It's you're going to get potentially massively more things done, or of a massively higher level of value. Uh, and and so that personal example—they give a, an example that's not my own. I tell the story in the book of how Peter Shankman
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, had a book deadline. So speaking of books, and what he did was he he booked a business class. Ticket to Tokyo and he flew to Tokyo, had an espresso in the airport flew back because on the plane in a business class seat uh, was incredibly conducive to deep work for him there was no possible distractions. He wrote the whole book in that 36 hour period another indication of the type of sort of massive value production and productivity that can come out of deep work when it's pushed uh, to an extreme level.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny you said that because it was that example, you know, I have another deadline uh, on Monday of this coming week, uh, which by the time you guys are listening to this, that deadline will have passed. But I, you know, I called a friend who has an apartment in Santa Barbara. I said, can I borrow your apartment for two days? I know you guys aren't staying there and I'm going to do exactly that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's And, and you, your experience probably was, or you, or you had not done it yet. It's, it's night and day, uh, a, a, a long period dedicated to depth. It's just, it's a completely different feeling, not just in what you produce, um, I mean you probably had this experience after the, the weekend in Santa Barbara. It's, uh, I had to add a whole chapter to the book about uh, why is this so fulfilling because it's, this is something that surprised me um, how much research there was backing up what I had experienced in my own life is that mm-hmm. doing this type of deep work not only produces things at a much higher rate, much higher value – but it's like this is what we're wired to do. It's, it's an incredibly fulfilling. It's hard, but it's incredibly fulfilling. So I ended up adding a chapter onto the book that really just dived in and said, this is why this is such a fulfilling activity to actually do. It's almost as if like human beings are wired to be deep work machines. We're, we're craftsmen at heart. So this type of work is hard, but it's, it's you know, one of the more fulfilling professional activities you can do. Hmm.
4: Yeah, it's funny because I even remember the the line uh, about you not having a smartphone <laughs> until recently because, you know, you're having a kid. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you've – you've I mean, I remember you told me you're not very active on social media. In fact, before, you know, you and I spoke the first time, I had to go through your publicist. Um, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that just because, you know, there's some pretty practical takeaways in the way you've organized your life that I think people would benefit hearing, from hearing about.
3: Yeah, so I, I take deep work very seriously. Um So just like a a professional athlete is very worried about their diet, I'm very worried about sources of distraction. I I think if my life has a lot of sources of distraction, I'm going to weaken my ability to resist it and my ability to deep work will go down. And this is very meaningful to me because I'm an academic at a research university. Um, If you're not producing at the very highest level – you don't, you lose your job. (laughs) This is 10 year. Basically you have a few years. Did you produce things of, of massive value? If not, you lose your job. So to me, this is very real. So I worry about these things. Um, so some practical things in my life. So I've never had a Facebook account. I've never had a Twitter account. I've never had a social media account. It turns out nothing bad happens if you don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, maybe if you're a college student, you, you, you miss out about parties, but if you're over the age of say 23, um, it turns out nothing really happens if you don't have it. So I've never had a social media account. Um, I'm purposefully hard to reach. I don't, I don't promulgate a, uh, a general purpose email address. There's not on my website, Hey, just give me a line and I want to know what you're up to. I I have specific addresses for sort of specific things. If you, if you're interested in like publicity, here's like my, my publicity, my, my, my publicist. If you have an opportunity to pitch to me, you can send it to this address. Um, I probably, I only respond though, if it's a good match. I mean, I don't have a generally available email address. I'm, I'm very hard to reach. I don't, I don't use social media. Um, I'm, I'm bad with my phone. I don't do text <laughs> messages. I go through long periods where, where I don't see email. So, uh, you know, you're not sure that if you do have my email that you can get back to me. All of those things, uh, I spend whole days, like uh, yesterday, for example, um, from 9 to 4, I was completely disconnected. In a non-trivial amount of that time, I was actually in the woods because <laughs> I was working on a proof. But it would have been a very hard time to get in touch with me. All of these things are, are all habits that I put in place to basically um, make me comfortable with being bored, to make me uh, comfortable resisting distraction, to allow me that when I do deep uh, work deeply to try to get to larger levels and, and deeper levels of focus. But you know, a point I make is that uh, I think more people should be doing something similar. And not necessarily everybody, um, but I think uh, it's useful, especially if, if deep work is important to you and your professional life to to move beyond what I call the any benefit mindset, which says that any tool that offers you some type of benefit is worth using. That that's not an actually very sophisticated way to understand tools to the point where in the book I actually I go out and I I, I spend time with a farmer. I say, okay, tools really matter for your occupation as a farmer. Tell us how you select which tools to use and which tools not to use. And first of all, he made it immediately clear that, of course, every possible tool you can buy as a farmer has some usefulness. There's a reason why it's for sale. And two, he made it clear is that he puts a ton of time in trying to figure out when he's going to invest his money and time in a tool and when he's not. And I make this argument that I think more people should do that with with digital tools in their own life. It's not a question of is there some benefit I get from Facebook? You know, the question should be, is this one of the small number of things that's bringing sort of massive value in my life? And if it's not, I don't want it interfering with those things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think that social media is bad. For example, I don't think that no one should use social media. I think, for example, if like yourself, you run a media company, (laughs) you probably should be using social media. On the other hand, uh, I think you know, something like Facebook or Twitter should be more like Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. something that has like a pretty solid following, people who like it, but also something that lots of people just have nothing to do with, and that's okay as well. Um, so I am a bit extreme on that, but I think once you start embracing deep work, I think you think differently about these things that, that we've, we've been told recently have to be a part of your life.
4: Yeah, it's funny because um, I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, my own media consumption habits, you know, especially after I read the book and and just over the last year. And like you said, we run a media company, so, you know, we kind of have to be on social media. But I've also realized, I'm like, OK, half the time I'm not here deliberately. I'm just here, uh, like on Facebook. And I realized that if we're deliberate about the time that we spend on social media, that's the way it ends up not just being a gigantic time suck. Like, for example, I knew you and I were going to be having a conversation. I have all distracting websites blocked for the next three hours. Like, I can't open TweetDeck, I can't open Gmail, I can't open Facebook. All I can do is, you know, talk to you on Skype and work on my book.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I think that, that that's something that I think we, we definitely see more of, uh, that people actually have to put these sort of physical or digital impositions that, mm-hmm. that lock them, from the, the possibility of looking at these distractions. But I also want to say for those who, who don't, for example, have to use social media as part of their specific job function, um, there's a psychological boost that happens much in the same way that when you, you know, you buy the really nice notebook, that's mm-hmm. how you've told yourself that you're serious about the novel you're going to write. Uh, but when you quit Facebook, you're psychologically telling yourself, uh, I value concentration. Uh, I I value, intense focus and being present and, and the, the type of creativity that can unlock and the, and the type of output that can unlock. And even if you don't even use Facebook that much, uh, there's something in actually the act of, say, quitting it that tells your mind where your values lie. And it's going to allow you to sort of get more out of those parts of your life. So I've, I've been a big proponent of you know more people leaving these services. And that's part of the reason why as well, is that it's, it's a way of telling yourself or committing to yourself, you know, what you find valuable in your life. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, uh, this has been amazing as I expected it would be. So I have one last question for you, which you've probably heard since you've uh, heard me ask it in a lot of interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, you know, I used the phrase, uh, uh, be, be so good, they can't ignore you as a
3: title of a book. So it's, it's a phrase that, um, I believe strongly in and, uh, a lot of ways, this this deep work book came in part out of people asking, um, "Well, how do you become so good that you can't be ignored?" And, and deep work really lies at the foundation of it. Uh, and it's it's a simple formula, but you know, to, to to be unmistakable, I think is that you've you're doing something that's that's so good and has so much value that it can't be ignored. You don't have to go out and tell everyone about it. You don't have to beat the drums or hope for a lucky break people are coming to you because what you're doing is so valuable. That's hard. You know, It takes a lot of skill development. It takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of deep work. It, it, it's, it doesn't take a lot of time on Facebook, but it does take a lot of those hours walking in the woods thinking or staring at the blank screen. Um, so I think that the, the goal of becoming unmistakable is a fantastic one. Um, and I think it's a goal that requires you becoming really good. And I think becoming really good at something valuable just requires a lot of depth. But the good news is, doing deep work and building up these skills is something that we're very well suited for. Uh, It's something that at the end of the day, you feel a lot better about than, than a a day's worth of, you know, email responses. So at least, at least this is the good news, you know, (laughs) this drive to be, you know, like the, the, the people I hear in your interviews that I'm always so impressed by the process of driving to to become that is actually in itself a a sort of unmistakably uh, positive experience.
4: Awesome. I think you you may have just given me uh, some fodder for a section of my book that wasn't <laughs> going to be there. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us uh, and you know share your story and your insights with our listeners. And you know for anybody listening, uh, I'll be sure to link up the book in the show notes. We'll also include it in the newsletter. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It will be such an important book for everybody who is looking to accomplish something in 2016. Uh, again, thank you so much, Cal, for for joining us.
3: Yeah, well, thank, thank you. I, I appreciated the opportunity to, to spread the gospel of
4: depth. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.